Welcome to week one of our One Series. How y'all doing? Doing well? Doing good? Ready for church? All right, we're going to kick this thing off. Uh, a long time ago, a couple, about four, four or five decades ago, there was a young woman named Agnes, and she was on a career path, and she was set, and she was climbing the ranks, and everything was going well, and she sat on a bus one day, and she felt like the Lord told her to change direction and to go change the world instead. And so Agnes said, she said, it felt like there was like a deep, deep calling to, to leave what she was doing and set out in a different direction, and so she set out to change the world. What I love already about this story is it's the beginning. It's the origin story of Agnes's moment or, 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 or life-changing moment. And, and I love origin stories. Does anybody else love the beginning of the story? I don't know. I'm like obsessed with them. If you ask even my wife, I could watch pilot episode after pilot episode after pilot episode. I could just watch like 20 pilot episodes. I don't have to get to the end or the next episode unless it like it, 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 it catches something. I'm like, oh, I'll watch it for a little bit and then go back to uh, the beginning of another story. I just love the beginning of the story. I love Lord of the Rings, right? Like the Fellowship of the Ring. Like that's one of my favorites. Or like Rocky one, like the first one, nothing yet, like he's still like just bare knuckling meat in the cooler, right? Like this is the best one. Like I love the, the first Marvel series. Like I love the first Spider-Man or the first Iron Man before they even know who they are. Why? I love, I love origin stories because it kind of shows us or tells us, I think one of the reasons for me is it tells us or shows us the way it was supposed to be. It, it reveals intent. It's like this is the way it was supposed to go down before. Before the crisis happened, before the, 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 the antagonist was, was introduced, like this is the way it was supposed to be. And then the rest of it is like fight and all right, cool, it's fun, it's good, it's gory, it's violence, it's amazing, it's beautiful, we love it, we blow things up. And then we get back to it like, you know what I mean? Like we're trying to get back to the way it was supposed to be. And, and, and one of the things about that is we all have an origin story. We all have a similar creation. We, we see our origin, the beginning, in creation stories, in our creation story. And one of the main themes in our origin story, or in one of the main, the how it was supposed to be, is filled with unity. What are some of the, one of the main themes is unity, is oneness. One of the things that we were at the beginning of time is we were one with God. We were one in our relationship with God. There was no separation yet. We were one with ourselves. Our, my own individual, the insecurity, the doubt, the fear, all that hadn't been introduced yet. I was wholly and fully one with myself. I was one, we were one with each other. Adam and Eve, right? They're back in the beginning. They're one with each other. They hadn't blame shifted yet. They, they didn't hate on each other yet. They weren't angry at each other yet. Like none of that had been introduced yet. If you could picture the world the way it was supposed to be. And then lastly, we were one with the world. They were still eating of the trees in the garden there and there was all this beauty there but we didn't have to work it it wasn't didn't come from sweat didn't come from toil it didn't come through pain it came just out of the beauty of it being where was oneness there was unity there was wholeness and then what happens right the fall happens and what happens in the fall unity with god oneness with god was broken it breaks God showed up for the first time on record, and what does he say? Adam, where are you? In other words, there's separation. 
for the first time recorded in the Bible, there's separation between God and man. He's like, hey, what's going on? What's, what's happening here? Unity with each other was broken. Adam's response to it, or with, my, with himself was broken. Adam's response to God is, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's the first time we covered ourselves up. It was the first time insecurity was introduced. Doubt was introduced. It's the first time shame was introduced. It's the first time fear was mentioned in the Bible or in the whole of the world that we have on record. Unity was with each other was broken. I love this one because it's the first time God's like, what did you do? And Adam's like, it wasn't me. The woman you put here with me, she ate it. She did it. And the woman's like, it wasn't me. It was the snake you put here. Like it's the first time though that we started to blame our problem on somebody else's issue. It was the first time that happened on record. Unity, lastly, unity with the world was broken. God doesn't, oh, God says this. He said, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It's not the first time eating is mentioned. Adam's not like, what's eating though? What do I do? Like, you do the thing that you did that made this whole thing mess up. You take another bite of this stupid apple. Except you have to work for it now. Pain will be introduced now. Toil will be. Sweat will now, there will be pain. The fall was everything that once, that was once unity and oneness would now become painful. But it's not how it was supposed to be. It's not the intent of the beginning. It's not the intent of our origin story. In fact, we can actually break down the biblical breakdown. Oftentimes, if you start to track it down and go, what happened next? You can actually break this down and you could see oneness and unity as one of the main themes throughout each of the ways that many theologians break down the Bible, which the first one is creation. The first one is creation. And I just talked about this, right? Unity is created. Oneness is created. We're fully one with God, one with ourselves, one with each other, one with the world. And then, and then we fall, and just like I just recapped, right? Go to the fall, fall, creation, and then fall. The fall, no. Fall. Unity was destroyed. Unity's destroyed. Unity's broken, Right? Steve Jobs invents Apple. He's the snake. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm just, I'm just joking. It's a total joke. I love Apple. Please don't sue. Okay. And then a lot of times we skip. We, we go from fall to, or from creation to fall, and then we introduce Jesus, and we go to redemption. And redemption shows up. And what happens in redemption? Unity and oneness is redeemed. In fact, what we see is Jesus dies on the cross and we, we talk about the curtain tearing or the veil between the temple and, and, and mankind. It, it, it rips and it rips from the top down. In other words, God's saying, hey, oneness is redeemed now. You have access to me. It's one of the major premium themes throughout the whole of the story. And then lastly, you have restoration. And restoration is unity restored. In other words, Jesus says, it's not just for me. Hey, you have, you have restored unity for you as well. And so, and, and as we track the story through, all of a sudden, mere men, mere women start to have relationship and unity and oneness with God. Actually, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it talks about some of the early churches of they're walking in unity. They are of the same mind. They're walking in the same direction. It encompasses now, hey, unity has now been restored because of what Jesus did. And this is a great, Great breakdown, creation, fall, 
redemption and restoration. But one of the things it misses, one of the key pieces it misses is the middle huge portion of scripture. When we skip from fall to redemption, we missed 1,033 pages. Arguably, well, not arguably, it is. The largest portion of scripture. The thing I like to reference as the pursuit portion. Because what you have is for 1,033 pages, you have God is pursuing humankind to redeem and to restore oneness with them. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And I want to show you what it looks like in this analogy. It's called gospel in chairs. And you can look it up online. Well, it is. Is that... Never mind. <laughs> it's called Gospel in Chairs. You can look it up online. If you go into YouTube, you can type in Gospel in Chairs. You can look at it. There's multiple different variations of it. So I didn't create it. I just stole it. I'm going to make it better. <laughs> By the grace of God. So what do we have again? Let's, let's just reshape it. Let's really look at this. Let's look at what the gospel, let's look at what the Bible, let's look at what the whole of the story tells us. What is really happening throughout scripture? Why is it written? What, what, what is it really saying? What's the depth and the meaning behind it? So what you have in the beginning, you have God. And God decides, I'd like to create something else. I'm gonna call them humankind, man and woman, Adam and Eve. This is cool. We're going to love this moment. We're going to be in this moment. We're going to cherish this moment. We don't know how long they lived here, but we know they frolicked through fields and they loved each other and they, they, they skipped down the roads and they did this move a lot. And they just, they, had a, they just had a great time in the garden. We don't know how long it lasted, but at some point, at some point, humankind decided, you know what? We did it your way for a little while, God. I want to try it a different way. And they turned their backs and they decided they missed the mark. And they decided we're going to try some other way. We're going to go a different direction. And what happens? Some of our theologies growing up said that this is the moment where God now turned his back because he was like, I can't look at you. You missed the mark too bad. But scripturally, if we look at the story, it's just not the case. Who shows up in the garden? Does God go to man or does man come chasing after God? God shows up and bring, comes straight to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? What's going on? And Adam says, I was naked. I was ashamed. I was afraid. Don't look at me. And he goes, wait a second. We can figure this out. And then move the story forward. Cain if, it, it, it does something terrible. Cain kills his brother Abel and turns from God. After, by the way, God said, don't do it. By the way, if you read the story, he's like, hey, I'm pissed off. And God's like, did I say it? Yeah, I can say it. I said it. <laughs> <clears throat> he's ticked off. I speak to youth all the time, so just deal with it, all right? I, mean, I get one youth word in my pocket per thing. I spent the coin. We're over it. Okay. We're past it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this is the online service too, so you're welcome. I love you guys. It's great for thanks for tuning in. It's amazing. Yes. All right. They're gonna edit all this later. Okay, we're moving on. <laughs> okay. So Cain 
God tells him, he's like, hey, don't kill your brother, basically. I mean, he literally is like, hey, you're angry. He's like, yeah, I am. He's like, don't do what you're thinking about doing. He's like, I'm going to do it. He turns his back on God. He does it his own way. And then what happens? Who comes after? Does Cain chase God or does God come for Cain? God shows up and says, Cain, where are you? What have you done? What's going on? Let's talk. And even at the end of the conversation, Cain's like, it's too tough. Um, it's good. That punishment's going to be too unbearable. And God literally says, no, if anyone seeks vengeance on you, they'll have, to see, they'll have to see my vengeance seven times over. In other words, even in spite of what you've done, which is totally wrong, which is totally off base, which is totally bad, You've totally missed the mark. I'm still going to protect you. I've still got your back. And so then what happens? Keep moving on in the story. Moses shows up. The, the children of Israel, they turn their backs on God. The Israelites, they turn their backs on God. They end up in captivity. And God goes, okay, I'll send you Moses to deliver you. And when he does deliver them, guess what happens? God's intent, it says this in scripture, you could track through it. He goes, I just want to reveal myself to all of them. Let them all see who I am. They can all taste of my glory. They can all see my glory and the goodness that I have. And what happens? Does God turn away? No, the children, the Israelites go, we don't, we can't handle that. We're too afraid. We're too, I don't, we don't want to see God. Just, just reveal yourself to Moses. So God says, okay, I'll reveal myself to Moses then, and I'll do it your way. I'll reveal myself to Moses, and Moses can reveal me to you. And so we'll do that way with Moses, and then we'll do it that way with Joshua. And then they do it through the judges. But as the judges start to come up, what happens? The Israelites start to turn their backs on judge after judge after judge. And finally, they say, we don't want judges anymore. And he says, well, what do you want? He goes, and they say to God, send us a king. Give us a king. It's working out for all the, other, the, all the other countries around us, all the other entities and tribes and groups of people around us. Give us a king. So what does God do? Does he reject them and turn away? No. He goes, okay, I'm willing to pursue you. I'm willing to chase you. I'm willing to find you. I just want to re, re, reconvene with unity and oneness again. I want to redeem this thing. So fine, I'll do it through a king. How about that? But what happens? They reject king after king after king, until finally they start breaking out into tribes and into, into groups again, and they start appointing their own king, and now we've got a king of Judah, and now we've got a king of the Benjamites, and now we've got a king. Everybody's got a king. Everybody, they're like they're handing out Oprah gifts at that point, like everybody gets one. It's getting ridiculous. This is the story. And so finally, God goes, fine, I'll at least send you prophets. Since you won't want to do it my way, I'll at least send you prophets. And I'll warn you, if you keep going this way, you're going to keep finding yourself into captivity. You're going to keep finding yourself in depravity. You're going to keep finding yourself missing the mark. You're going to keep finding yourself in hopelessness. And I want hope for you, so I'll at least warn you. And what do they do to the prophets? They murder them, and they kill them and they reject them time and time again until finally God says I'll send myself through Jesus Christ himself and I'll meet you right here on planet earth I'll meet you right where it started let's go let's talk and what does he do he shows up and there's a Samaritan woman at a well 
And she has no knowledge of God. In fact, when, God, when Jesus offers her something of God, she says, I don't know that God. I don't even know of that. I don't think I'm supposed to know of that God. That's a God for a different tribe, for a different tongue, for a different nation. But Jesus meets with her. He sees her eye to eye, sits with her face to face right here, has a conversation and tells her, but I still have a gift of life for you. I have a well that won't run dry. I have something for you. I've got purpose for you. I've got a destiny for you. And she says, okay. And then Jesus keeps moving on and he finds a tax collector. And this tax collector has been used as a pawn for the emperor of, for the empire of Rome. He's a political pawn. And therefore he's been ostracized by all the religious heads as well. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house today. I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to talk with you. And I'm going to offer you the same gift of salvation that I offered the Samaritan woman that God's been offering for generations and millennia up until this point. And on this day, Jesus says salvation has come to this man's house. And then he comes into the contact with a criminal on a cross. Somebody that nobody had justification for. Not the political side of it, not the religious side of it, not the society around it. Nobody had justification for what this man did. A hard and fast criminal. And yet Jesus on a cross sees the man and says, on this day you will be with me in paradise. And even to the point when humanity now literally kills Jesus Christ himself, literally kills God himself. When humanity turns their backs on God, driven by pride, driven by fear, driven by the need to maintain the axis of power within, they kill God himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does what? He hangs on a cross, and as he hangs on that cross, being brutally beaten and crucified, he hangs there and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even when humanity meets its fate in death, in other words, this is the fate that we have. We are going to die, and there is no way around it. And God sees this as a separation of himself. He says, then I will meet you in death. For he has references in Song of Solomon and Psalms about meeting in the very depths of hell and in the very depths of the grave. I will go, but... Jesus says, I will not just stay there, for I am the resurrection and the life. I am the prophecies they talked about. I am the great I am. I am the redeemer. I am the truth and the life. But it's not just for me. For anyone who calls on me has life. Anyone who claims my name has the life that I've talked about it. And not death and not hell and not grave and not, and not despair and not hopelessness. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The gospel is that God is willing to actively pursue each and every one of us every time. Just as he did through the Old Testament. Just as Jesus modeled it through the New Testament. Even to the point of death and in the midst of the grave, God will actively come and pursue you and offer you life and life abundantly. Nothing will, nothing can, nothing has ever stopped the love, the Father has for you. Amen. And Jesus didn't just say that. 
He didn't just do it. He didn't just live it. He said it in these beautiful words in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, it says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? What is Jesus doing again? He's revealing the heart, of, uh, the heart of the Father to us. A God who's willing to go after, to go to leave the 99 and go after the one. What is he saying? He's saying, I've got you. He's saying, if I had to do it all over again, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, if I had to do, go through every channel again just to save one, why? Because he, at the end of the day, is a father and he cannot stand to see his children missing. He can't stand to see his children off the mark. He can't stand to see his children in despair and hopelessness. He loves you and he wants you and he would have done it all for the one that's going astray. The whole of the story, the whole of the story is God is willing to do all of this for you if it was just you. And when one of us, when one of us model the pursuit of people, the, the pursuit of someone, the same way God did in the Old Testament, the same way Jesus did in the New Testament. It only takes one to model it. It can shake the world around you. It has power. It has authority. See, I told you about this woman named Agnes. She's on a bus. And she hears this call from the Lord, go change the world. And so she doesn't even know what she's going to do, but she sets out. Okay, I'll go change the world. And as she's walking through her city, not sure what she's going to do next, she looks down and down in a gutter, she sees people, multiple people, broken, hurting, destitute, basically living to die at this moment. And she sees one young woman in particular, and she thinks she's about to die. She's only got a couple hours. And she could tell this because there's literal rats and cockroaches that are eating at the woman's feet. And instead of just walking on by, she decides this is the one she's going to start with. And she goes down and she scoops up this woman and she brings her to the hospital. And when she gets to the hospital, there's a nurse there that says she can't come in. So what are you talking about? She needs help. She says she's honestly too far gone. We don't have that many beds. We need to save the beds for the people who we can save. We cannot accept her. So Agnes walks out with this woman and takes her, sits down with her. And she just sits with her as she slowly drifts to death. Thinking about this woman and then, and then thinking about all these other people she saw in the gutters and, and, and the homeless people within her city that she knows of that are living in the streets. She thinks this can't be. We're just going to let people die on their own. At least they should have someone to, to be there with them, to comfort them while they die. So she sets out to make that change, to make that difference. And she ends up buying an abandoned, uh, an abandoned hotel. And she starts filling people 
She starts telling people, if you're sick, if you're, if you're dying, if you're hurting, if you can get to this hotel, we, we can't promise care for you. We'll try to care for what we can, but we don't have medical experience, but we'll at least sit with you. And by the hundreds, they start to show up. By the thousands, they start to show up. So much so that her city starts to take notice of what's going on. Not just her city, but then the country that she lives in starts to take notice of what's going on. And then not just the the country, the world as a whole starts to notice, wow, something incredible is happening right here. See, the world took so much notice of Agnes deciding one day to take care of one person. They took so much notice that today you wouldn't know her as Agnes. Today, you would actually know her as Mother Teresa. By the time of her death in 1997, Mother Teresa had built the Missionaries of Charity And they numbered, the missionaries numbered more than 4,000. In addition to thousands more lay volunteers. With 610 foundations in 123 countries around the world. Mother Teresa received various honors for her tireless and effective charity. She was awarded the Jewel of India, the highest honor bestowed on Indian civilians, as well as the Soviet Union's gold medal of the Soviet Peace Committee. And finally, in 1979, Mother Teresa was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of her work in bringing help to suffering humanity. A girl on a bus who received a vision from God to change the world, she ended up receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. For accolades and charities well documented, but what's less documented was where she started. One life in the slums in Calcutta. If we could zoom back and just take a peek, take a look at Agnes. This is Agnes. See, I think it's hard for us at times when we when we know it's Mother Teresa, we go, Well, I can't be Mother Teresa. How could I be Mother Teresa? I'm not that good. I'm not that amazing. I don't really care about people that much. honest, right? It's hard to be Mother Teresa. But you know who we can be? You know who we are? Is Agnes. See, and if Agnes was, was never Agnes, if she never just reached out to the one, then Agnes never becomes Mother Teresa. If Agnes just says, okay, I'll just take the one seriously enough tonight. And that's it. The response that we should have, the response that we should look at when we first recognize and realize, whoa, 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 I'm God's one. I'm the one that he pursued. I'm the one that he chased after. I'm the one that even though I kept turning my back on and I rejected him, I hated on him, I cursed him, I, I spit on him, I put him up on the cross with my own stuff, with my own way that I got off my mark. Even though I did all that, he kept pursuing, he kept chasing, he kept coming. He wouldn't give up on me. He kept offering hope. He kept offering peace. He kept offering life. He kept offering abundance. Even in the midst of all that, then how? Our response is simple. Okay, who can I do that for? Because eventually he gives us the keys. He says, now you do it for the next person, for the one next to you. And that's the beauty about Agnes. We can all be Agnes because we all have someone around us that's in need. Just start with one. In fact, Mother Teresa, in one of her many powerful quotes, said this. 
She said, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time, just one, one, one. So you begin. I began. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. And then she went on to say this. The same thing goes for you. The same thing in your family. The same thing in your church, your community. Just begin one, one, one. I just want to say two last things tonight. First of all, if you're the person who feels like you're spiritually in the gutter, you feel like you're the one who's just continuously turned your back on God, rejected him, he's an all-forgiving, his grace is scandalous, he loves you, he's pursuing you, the Bible tells us he stands at the door and knocks, and I believe he's knocking on your door tonight. And all you have to do is say yes. You don't have to do some broad, incredible, specific, amazing prayer. You just have to say yes to his invitation to follow him. If you are saying yes tonight, I would ask, we want to walk this journey out with you. We don't want to leave you with no resource. There's some real practical things that we want to help start talking to you about if that is you, we have a text. It's on the back screen right behind me. If you could text into that. We just want to start to continue this relationship. As you start a relationship with Jesus, we can help with the first few steps. And secondly, for some of us, for some of us, sometimes these messages right now, sometimes it's still a yawn fest. It's like, I've heard this before. It's the good news. It's the gospel. I got it. That's amazing. That's great. I'm so glad that you got it. But the next question is for you. Who is your one then? Who are you reaching then? Who are you actively pursuing? With the same tenacity, with the same passion, with the same love that God pursued us, who are you pursuing? Regardless of how many times they reject you, regardless of how many times they, they, they turn their seat on you, regardless of that picture, who are you pursuing with that type of love? Who will you start with? The takeaways are simple. Number one, God is pursuing oneness with you. Number two, now you can pursue the one next to you. It's not a so then, it's a because of. It's a byproduct. God is pursuing oneness with you always. Now you are free to pursue the one next to you. Ultimately, we are called to be the one that goes after the one. Pray with me. God, I just thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for constantly and actively pursuing each and every one of us. Without it, God, we would be lost. We would be hopeless. But you consistently offer hope in every moment and in every situation. God, I just pray that as you offer that to us, I pray that we would also do the same for others. 
I pray that we would actively pursue. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.